So um, <clears throat> the fourth Sunday of the month, I found myself at Against the Stream. And I was giving a talk on karma uh, having to do with birth, life, and death. And I started talking about afterlife, and it generally doesn't go over well when you speak about afterlife, unless you're old. And, <laughs> and somebody came up to me after my talk and said, you know, I wish I had as much faith as you do, because I don't believe in afterlife. And, and I thought to myself, well, that's really interesting, because I don't really have much faith either. And uh, maybe I should investigate what faith is in Buddhism and see if it applies to me or not. So in doing a little research for the talk today, it was fascinating to find out that Buddhism has a lot of faith connected to it. I think the least amount of faith can be found in early Buddhism. And that's the Theravada tradition of Sri Lanka and Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and and what we find there is the very first step you take on the Buddhist path requires faith. And it requires faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It requires uh, faith to think and eventually know that there was a human named Siddhartha who through his own effort wisdom and compassion achieve the final goal of a human being, which is perfection. Now, let me qualify what perfection is. Perfection is, uh, instead of uh, greed, you only have generosity. Instead of hatred and anger, you only have loving kindness and compassion. Instead of ignorance and delusion, you only have wisdom and insight. This takes a while to acquire. I'm thinking a few hundred, if not thousand lifetimes of practice to get to that place that you can say, I have become perfect. But of course, once you get to that place, you're not going to say that. Other people might say it. Also, in studying the four levels of nirvana, the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and the arahant, the first three levels of nirvana has faith connected to it. The fourth level, arahant, no faith necessary. Okay, so that's where I started. And then I thought to myself, well, how about Zen? Because this, this center here was founded by a Vietnamese Zen monk. And does Zen have faith? And, and there's great doubt. And there also turns out to be great faith. And in the Soto school, especially, what we find is faith in Buddha nature. That Dogen said, we have a Buddha nature. And it's not obvious, and, and it's hard to describe. And if you come from Iowa, like I do, what you think of when you hear about Buddha nature is a soul. Because my folks were Lutheran, and we all had souls, and there was no discussion. And, and yet, Dogen was not talking about that as far as I'm concerned. What Dogen was talking about, according to me, was Buddha nature is our potential to achieve enlightenment. 
It's the potential we all carry with us because of this human birth. And I remember once I was participating in a Buddhist Catholic dialogue. And one of the priests came over and said to me, I know you have the spark of God. And I looked at him and said, I know you have Buddha nature. And we both laughed. So for a Buddhist, this potential is, is just a marvelous reason to start to practice because it's not going to be realized without practice. And so we need to have faith that it exists, that because of this human birth, we all have the ability to achieve enlightenment. Now we get into some of the other schools of Mahayana Buddhism, the later form of Buddhism, and we find faith becomes a very important aspect because of of cosmic deities, also known as bodhisattvas. Now not all the bodhisattvas in the Mahayana tradition were earthborn. A lot of them were born in the heaven realms. And, And we almost find a similarity between Christianity and Mahayana Buddhism when you're talking about the potential of having faith and devotion in a bodhisattva who will help you reduce your suffering and add clarity to your life. In the same way we might look at Jesus or God and say, uh, they will help me. I, I shouldn't... I'm, I always get, I got to be very careful because they won't help you end your suffering. They will help me transcend and find salvation, God and Jesus. And the bodhisattvas will help us end our suffering and ultimately find our salvation in enlightenment. The, The Lotus Sutra is one sutra that really defines faith well. And you really need to have faith in the Lotus Sutra to let it give you faith. And one of the parts of the Lotus Sutra that always made me feel uncomfortable was the part of a woman becoming enlightened in the Lotus Sutra. If you've heard about this, what happens in a moment, the woman turns into a man, becomes enlightened, and then turns back into a woman. Because apparently women couldn't become enlightened being a woman. Now, this was written a long time ago. We have cultural pressure. We have patriarchy. We have a lot of reasons why that may be the case. But for me, I found that to be a stumbling block in really accepting the Lotus Sutra as being something the Buddha would have talked about. Because when the Buddha was asked if women could achieve nirvana, he said, of course. And if you read the Terigata, which are the poems of the early Buddhist nuns, these are the poems written by the Arhants, the Arhant women, the women who had achieved nirvana. So according to Theravada, you could still be a woman, you didn't have to be a man, and you could achieve nirvana. I like that. But now we come to this place that really sort of catches me off guard and turns out to be the most popular form of Buddhism in Asia, and that is Pure Land Buddhism. And they have a bodhisattva which turned into a Buddha named Amitabha Buddha. And he has his own heaven realm. And if you have faith, vow, and devotion towards Amitabha, 
and you say his name three times in your life with faith, vow, and devotion, he will personally escort you to his pure land. And in his pure land, you will be taught the Dharma by all things there. Trees and grass and rabbits and squirrels and humans and devas. Everything teaches the Dharma there. And you are guaranteed enlightenment. There are no fails in pure land. And I think that's just really cool. And it's a perfect religion for the farmer. Back in the old days in Asia, there was a lot of farming going on because there was a lot of people to feed. And they weren't necessarily all scholars. Uh, just like the farmers here, just like the urbanites here. We're not all scholars. Most of us probably don't find theology or dharmology fascinating. We want to spend years studying it and to try to find the true meaning locked away in those texts. So they would say, all you need to do is say Amitabha Buddha three times with faith, vow, and devotion. And they'd be in the fields and they'd be saying Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, Amitabha and when I go to the Vietnamese temples today, one especially down in Long Beach, you'll find the young people talking about Zen and philosophy, and you'll find all the old people chanting Amitabha Buddha. And they're just like in rows, and they're just chanting. Because this is it. This is, they need to get their ticket. The train is about to leave, and they want to be on it, you know? And so there are Zen masters, I have been told, that practice both Zen and Pure Land, just in case enlightenment isn't in the cards this lifetime. They're going to hedge their bets. And I'm sort of thinking that might be a good way to do it myself. (laughs) Hedge those bets. So, having read about that and, and understood that faith is found in all forms of Buddhism, I then looked upon myself and say, well, why don't you have any? You know, and, and how can you reflect and share your thoughts on Buddhism when faith is lacking in your own practice and your own life? Well, you know, I might have had faith at one time, but I probably became disappointed. Because when you have faith in something, you're not sure of the outcome. You're hoping it's going to turn out the way you want it to, and you have faith that it will, and people tell you to have faith, and then it doesn't. And it sort of just makes you second-guess everything, you know? And, and so I went on this very empirical journey saying, you know, if I can't experience it, it doesn't exist in my life. It might exist in the lives of others, but not in my life because I haven't had the direct experience. And I applied that to Australia. I said, I'm not sure if Australia exists. I've seen maps, but it's it's a piece of paper with lines on it, which didn't really convince me that it existed. And I read in the history book that it did exist, and there's some really cool creatures, and they've got great surfing. I read all of that, but, you know, it could have been just one big story. And then I heard people with that accent, that wonderful Australian accent. And I thought to myself, that could simply be a speech impediment. <laughs> you know? So, so then I had the wonderful opportunity of going to Australia. And I flew there. And it f- takes forever to fly there. It's very far away. 
And we got there, and it's real. According to me, my sense stores now have come into contact with something called Australia. And I can validate in my personal experience that I now have confidence, not belief, but I have confidence that it does exist. And so that's one way that I sort of worked through belief. I changed it into confidence through personal experience or through testing it. You know, the Buddha in the Kalama Sutta told us not to believe anything just because the elders tell us it's true or because you read it in a book someplace or even if the Buddha said it, you don't have to believe it's true. We're not sure what the Buddha said. It was written down long after he died. And, and it's not like the Bible with God speaking. It's a man speaking. It's a human speaking. And then a bunch of other humans called monks sort of edited what he said. And, and we had this wonderful context of Buddhism found in a hundred volumes. And some of it's well-written, some of it's repetitive, some of it has morals, some of it's a journey. And, and, and it's really cool, but we don't have to believe that that is the case, that it's true, because we have belief in those books. So I thought about myself, and, and I said, well, what, what do I do? What do I do when I'm faced with uh, the problem of belief? You know? And, and so this is my technique, and I'm, I'm happy to share it with you, and you might find it useful yourself, that when I come up against something that I have to believe in, I say, well, I wonder why I have to believe in it. See, I create this question for myself. What's the reason behind it? Why did the Buddha say there was an afterlife? 33 heaven realms, 33 hell realms, six realms. Why did he say that? Why is it reported that he said that? Is it necessary for me to believe in it? Or can I find the cause or the reason for that pronouncement? And for instance, in afterlife, I, I've come to realize that the only part of us that really doesn't want to die is our ego, is our personality, is our sense of self. It is scared to life about death. Its whole job, ever since it was created inside of us, was to protect us and allow us to live as long as we could. And now it's faced with the eventual end of its existence. And it's freaking out. You know, it doesn't know what to do. Our left hand could care less if our body dies. Our left hand can just relax now. It doesn't have to form any chords on the neck of a guitar. It doesn't have to open any cans or untie any bows. It can just die and never have to work again. And I'm sure it's probably pretty happy about that. But the ego is screaming. And afterlife may be just what we need to make the ego feel a little more calm and secure in its existence by telling it it's not over yet. This is just simply the beginning of another journey. You'll live again. You'll become somebody again. It'll be wonderful. And all you have to do is die once. And so we have all these really well-thought-out stories about how to die, where we're going to go, and how wonderful it's going to be. You only hear a couple short stories on hell, but you read novels on heaven. And it's going to be wonderful. You're going to see all your friends there. You're all going to be a certain age, the age you like the best. 
and you'll recognize them. And forever and ever, you'll be around them. And won't that be wonderful? Probably not. But in that initial understanding, it sounds just great. And all the dogs and cats that have died that you've had as pets, they'll come running towards you saying, welcome, it's about time, we were waiting for you. And now the ego is looking at, yeah, this is going to be really good. When can I die? Do I have to wait or can I go right now? (laughs) And so... In Buddhism, we say, well, no, you can't go right now. The first, the first precept is not to take your life or anybody's life or any life of anything. So, no, you can't go right now. You're going to have to wait. But that's the one thing you're going to be sure of, death. And it's going to be marvelous. It's going to be spectacular. And there you are in the hospice, barely able to breathe, eyes half open. You know, spasms going through this body that's getting ready to exit the world. And the hospice worker is reading to you from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, saying this is what you need to experience consciously. Because as your consciousness dies, it'll start to break up, and your personality won't be as strong as it used to be. It won't be able to hold together all those concepts and ideas and stories and narratives of who you are. You're going to have to let them go. You're going to become more and more transparent. And there'll be a certain ease of letting go. And then there'll be that wonderful last breath, which will be the first breath of the next lifetime. And that wonderful last thought, Amitabha Buddha, which will be the first thought of the next lifetime. So just relax and let go. And then you die. And then, according to Buddhism, within one day, seven days, 49 days, six months, one year, you're back. And you're getting ready to have another life. But it's not going to be the same ego. It's not going to be the same you. There's no relationship at all to the last life except for karma. And sometimes it's hard to see that causal connection in this lifetime. So people say, do you believe in afterlife? And I say, no, but you know what? That's what Buddhism says. But I didn't ask you that. I said, do you believe in it? I said, well, I'm just telling you what Buddhism says. That's my job as a monk, to tell you what Buddhism says. It's not my job to validate it, because I can't. I can't validate it for you. You have to sit down on the cushion. You have to meditate. You have to read the Dharma. You have to understand it at whatever level you're coming at it from. And then, yes, you will know too. You will know that that is Buddhism. And is Buddhism true to you? And then you'll say, well, you know, I took the five precepts because I had faith that it was true. I took the three refuges because I had faith that this will be my truth eventually. And as I'm working up to that ultimate truth that I'm going to accept as being reality, I have confidence in every step I take because it self-validates. It doesn't ask you ever to believe in something. It asks you to always test it out. Your laboratory, the Zendo, or the Buddha Hall, or your retreat, or your daily practice. That's where you test it out. That's where you see if it will be true 
for you. And, and faith is never really truth. Faith is a truth that might happen. You know? And I've always been skeptical of things that might happen because for me, they didn't. And I was always disappointed. You know? I remember at the age of 11, I went to a holiday celebration and Santa Claus was there. And I'm going, finally I get to meet Santa Claus. I've been wondering about him. And I looked at him and I could see he was wearing a beard and makeup and a shabby suit. And all those ideas of Santa and the reindeer, they just died right there. No more faith. Then the Easter Bunny died. I'm just losing it all along the way, all these things I grew up with. They turned out not to be true. They required faith, and I lost that faith. So I saw through the illusion of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. But then you apply it to work and your boss. Oh, he's going to be a great boss. He's going to be, he's going to be honest, and he's going to be, have equanimity and treat all the employees the same, and blah, blah, blah. And then they don't, because they're human. And some employees are their favorites, and others aren't. And you just go, man, I can't even be the favorite. What's wrong with me? So you lose sort of faith in the system, and you get some presidents, and you get some congress, and you get some wars, and you just go, man. And then the Vietnam War was just on PBS, still playing now. I was drafted. You know, I didn't go. I had a physical deferment. I was, I was thankful for that because I didn't want to go out and kill people. And then you read all the things that were behind the Vietnam War. They were stopping communism. And it wasn't about Vietnam. It was just communists were coming our way. And if they took over Vietnam, they would take over the world. And I'm thinking, you know, 1930s, 1940s, the red threat. You could always tell a communist, by the way, they smoked their cigarettes. And just, <laughs> You know, and we've had it forever. It just keeps going and going. So I lost faith in that, you know. Then, is there really a Los Angeles? Where does that exist? Where's the essence? Where's the soul of L.A.? Couldn't find it. Lost faith in that. But I have confidence that something exists that resembles Los Angeles, and I find myself in that, participating at whatever level I participate at. And yeah, so it exists, but not in the way I had faith it did. So, Buddhism allowed me not to have faith and have a religion. Even though Buddhism has faith as a vehicle to liberation, it allowed me not to have that. It allowed me to have serious questions and investigate and find the answers and come to a place of confidence that this will work for me. And I share that enthusiasm and insight with others, not knowing if it will work for them, they have to decide that. So this month I'm going to Peninsula High School in Palos Verdes to give a talk to students in a comparative religions class. And I always like that because students don't have faith in Buddhism in Palos Verdes. It's in a textbook. It's chapter four. <laughs> You know, and so this guy shows up, you know, who's far too tall to be a Buddhist monk, and he plays harmonica, and he has great stories and a strange sense of humor. And they go, you know what, Buddhism does exist in the world. In some odd way, this guy portrayed it, and I understand what he's talking about. 
So all of a sudden, chapter 4 becomes alive. And it's, it's, a living, it's a living experience for them. So I'm very lucky that I don't have faith, that I chose to have confidence instead. And I chose truth over believing. And that allows me to look at Buddhism and feel comfortable in the beginning, in the middle, and the end.